0: Today on the podcast, it's my dear friend, Dr. Marcus Collins. His new book for the culture is out today. The power behind what we buy, what we do, and who we want to be. We're going to get into all of the things that went into this three-year project, and it's finally out into the world. And I don't mind saying this as somebody who's worked in marketing for almost my entire life. This is probably one of the best marketing books I've ever read. Let's talk about it next. And as I said, my guest today, I am so honored to be able to do this on launch day. The good doctor, Marcus Collins. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm doing very well, my brother. Thanks so much for having me. I am stoked to be here with you.
0: So before we jump in, for first of all, obviously, congratulations on the book being out today. But for people who might not know you as a first-time author, kind of give them the elevator pitch of how you and I got to be doing this interview at this very moment. Like, let's go all the way back to being engineering student, to... First time author, how to like condense that and tell them who you are.
1: Uh, so I'm a product of Detroit, born and raised in the city, went to into University of Michigan to study engineering because I thought I wanted to be an engineer until I realized that I didn't end up going into the music industry, uh, start, did a startup that did pretty well until it didn't as music ventures go, went back to school to my MBA, went to go work at Apple, doing partner marketing for iTunes, manage our relationship with Nike sports music, ended up moving to New York, met a guy named Matthew Knowles who has a daughter named Beyonce Knowles. And he says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You were an engineer, you started a music company, you have an MBA, you work at Apple and you're black. You don't exist, you're a unicorn, you're not real. I go, yes, I am, I'm a real thing. Says, well, you should run Digital Strategy for Beyonce. And I said, Yes, sir, I should do that. So went and ran Digital Strategy for Beyonce before going into advertising. During that time, I was at a pure play social agency called Big Fuel that was acquired by Publicis. Went to work at an agency called Translation that was started by Jay-Z. And ironically, um, ironically, Jay-Z and um uh, his uh the, the the person who led the agency, a guy named uh, Steve Stout. And uh I found myself in the world of academia while also working in practice. Fast forward, worked a little, spend time a donor. Now at Wyden Kennedy, teaching at the University of Michigan as well, Ross School of Business, while also uh, putting my first book in the world today. Whew! That was the fast-forward version,
0: which which I love. So we can get to the meat of this, which is. I want to ask you about the process. You've been doing a whole bunch of content before the launch of the book, and one of the things that stood out to me is that this has been a three-year process, which is very, very different than both your academic work and professional work, right? You you know, when you're putting out assignments for your students, you get that feedback almost immediately, either how excited they are or not excited you are, you know, and when you guys are working on campaigns, they're not, they might be six months, but they're usually not three years. And so what has this process been like for you to actually have to slow down and wait?
1: It's It's been lonely. <laughs> it's, been, <laughs> it's a lonely process. You know, actually I just when I did my doctorate, I thought that was lonely, but I had a support system beyond like my friends and family, but I had a, a, a supervisor for my committee. I had a committee of people that I was constantly bumping ideas off of to get some feedback. But when you're writing a book, it's a long narrative and you're constantly just putting pieces together, sort of like Tetris, trying to create something meaningful. And to bring someone in on one small part of the idea sort of loses context of the the broader part. So I feel like I spent a lot of time writing this thing by myself, trying to figure out what I really wanted to, to say. And to your point, I mean, and interestingly, you know, you thrusted me into the world of content creation when it comes to making videos. The, that the feedback is just so great that you get instantaneously. You know if a video is working or not, and then you can continue to iterate. But I didn't know my thing is working until 12 hours ago, when it <laughs> into the world. I mean, I got some feedback from the market, which was great from uh, early readers, endorsers, which made me feel really good. But it's, you know, you you need more people to buy into it. So you don't really know. So it's, it it, it can be, it, it's scary. It's, it's lonely. And you tend to sort of doubt yourself a lot throughout the entire process. But I can say hand to God that I feel really proud of what I put in the world. I think it's representative of my 20 plus years uh as a practitioner my work as a scholar what i teach as an academic um and and sort of the 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 book i wish i had in these major inflection points throughout my career
0: and one of the the things that i love about you as a human being is your humility and i said this in the intro so i'm going to say it to your face uh you are underselling this book by a long shot this is the best marketing book that's been put out. And you've known me for a long time. I read a lot. This is the best thing out there right now. So if you work in that space, it's brilliant. But the thing that I love about the book, and we can get into that in a second, is the way in which it does something that most other business books don't really focus on. They might touch on it, put a tentacle here or there, but you're really diving into how humans behave in the world so that marketers can market better and understand their consumers better at a time when the country is not really great about understanding one another and what they're for.
1: That's true. And I, I credit that to the multi hyphens that have made up my career from being an engineer to being a musician, to being a marketer, to being a scholar. You know, I look at the world like an engineer. I look at the world and I see systems an ecosystem of things that collectively work together to create the world that manifests around us. So when I'm thinking about consumers, people, I I think about the underlying physics that govern what they do. And the better we understand those mechanisms, the more empowered we become as practitioners to leverage those mechanisms to get people to adopt behavior, which is the core function of marketing. So I pull in those things that people who are a million times smarter than me have interrogated, negotiated had their work replicated over decades, one we even argue centuries. Think about Emil Durkheim, for instance, take that brilliance and put it into a frame that's more contemporary, that takes advantage of the technologies that we have today and all the cultural production around us and all its many fashions and forms to make sense of how they all play together so that marketers can leverage this thinking into their work, but also we as citizens, as human beings, might be able to navigate the world with more agency. And it's not like marketing gobbledygook. It's not um, 1,000% all uh, theoretical, which theory is a really important thing. It's the marriage of the two. And those things have helped me put, you know, the work I'm most proud of in the world, like launching the Brooklyn Nets, launching um, launched the main American music festival for Budweiser even most recently um launching uh Google pixel uh, real tone technology right so this is things that have spanned 20 plus uh uh 20 plus year time horizon that I think is it provides a lot of a lot of evidence points of proof that the thinking is not just theoretical but it's uh it's applicable as well
0: and, and I think one of the things that you do I am a, a nerd for words and specifically words that don't translate into English very well. They don't, there's no like analog. And one of those is a Hebrew word called Midrash, which is the idea of like the white space in between the text of the, Torah is where all the magic is. And that's seemingly what you're doing in this book, right? You're taking the theory and the practice, and then you're focusing on the Venn diagram of the magic that happens in the middle.
1: That's right. It's like in jazz music, it's the important part is what you don't play. Yes. It's the the space between the notes that, uh, that makes the music breathe, that gives the music life in really interesting ways. The way you can control silence is a really powerful thing. And for me, I'm looking at, you know, let's not, Talk about like what makes an idea powerful, because there are a lot of many ways, a lot of things that, that, that added that. But what makes an idea, a, a product, a message, a person, an institution, an organization, what actually gets people to move? And the better we understand that at a, a conceptual uh uh a, conceptual place, then we can leverage it across many, many, many different contexts. You know, I say in the book, like, it's not a marketing book, it's a people book. Because at the core, we're trying to get people to adopt behavior. So if you have a vested interest in getting people to move, this book's gonna be very helpful in doing that.
0: You're doing a podcast, which I'll talk about in a second. You've done a ton of video content. You're doing a ton of interviews like we are right here. Why a book? Why was it important to actually do this in a book and not do this in any other medium?
1: Well, a, a few reasons. I think that a book scales in ways that is unique. Now, I'm gonna say, oh, p- Millions of people can watch a video. Like you know, it, the, the 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 social networking platforms allow things to propagate in really powerful ways. But there's a certain level of depth that you can get into in a book that you can't really explore in a smaller form like a, like a video. You know, even even uh, filmmakers, you know, they take what might be five hours worth of film and they truncate it down into two hours so that it's digestible. Where people have much more tolerance for a longer book that allows you to explore things in 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 great detail and i think that to really get at the bottom of what we're talking about this idea of culture as the most powerful the most influential external force to human behavior it requires great great rigor and it requires great great depth and i think that you know i give talks all the time and i make videos and I teach a fourteen-week course at the University of Michigan. Well, many courses, University of Michigan, Uni- uh, Ross School of Business. But even that doesn't allow me to get to the the depth that I think that a book could. And the hope is that um, it it creates a foundation that people can scaffold more thinking on. I mean, this is this is what academics do: we disseminate knowledge through prose, because through prose we can get to more uh, more exactness. So that uh, the foundation that people build on is more concrete.
0: Please tell me that you've assigned your book to your class already.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. The <laughs> fall. Everyone's reading for the culture.
0: <laughs> All right. You better so, believe it. So, uh, like I said earlier, you've also started a podcast called For the Self Culture, which you've also, oddly enough, been working on for three years. What was the impetus to that? You know, because episode three or four is from. 2021. So you've always been working on this for a minute. What was the impetus to kind of make this an additive to the work that you're doing with for the culture. This is now for the subculture.
1: Right. So uh so the, the idea for the subculture is to to be sort of chapter 2 or the next episode or maybe maybe uh it's the um, uh it's the uh, the addendum. It's you know to go back to to biblical terms, it's the lost scrolls if you will of for the culture. Right? It's the Apocapha For the culture, Oh, a deep cut. We're doing a deep cut here. So you you got for the culture that really capsized this argument with great detail. But then the idea of for the subculture as this podcast to do it with Wyden Kennedy, where I run strategy and the head of Karma Lab, where he's now the the global uh, brand ambassador for Reddit, is that we basically kind of do like a like a culture safari. Probably not the best word to use, but an, an ethnography into these different subcultures, leveraging the principles from the book to explore the cultural characteristics, the conventions and expectations of these subcultures that we think we know that we really probably don't know very well, be it sneakers. Be it uh, uh, trading cards, I can do with Josh Luber. Today's episode, this is a the, the, this that uh, this we're recording this session here, as was with Jalen Rose, talk about basketball culture. And the idea is just that this this space is just so vast and so deep that I could spend the rest of my life writing about it, exploring it, talking about it in all the many fashions that, that it happens. And I thought that it was just a really good like one-two punch to release the book. Uh, this week in the podcast, last week in the podcast will continue to roll out. So people could see around us everywhere, like everything is culturally informed. And the better we understand that, the better language we have to describe it, the more power we have to navigate it and and, uh, and bend it.
0: So I made this observation the other day with a friend of mine and I was talking about, and you and I have actually talked about this too. I was talking about um, this loss of wonder and I was pondering the idea of if you're losing of your childlike wonder of seeing the world, if that might not be a catalyst to misunderstanding other cultures or not being accepting to kind of welcome new cultures in. And I wonder, as somebody who's putting out a book called For the Culture, um, A, any merit to that? And B, if someone wants to be better at observing other cultures and, and kind of trying to understand them as opposed to opposing them, um, what are some things that I would, I hate the word tips and tricks, so I'm not gonna ask you that, but like, what are some tactics and strategies they can use, which are like tips and tricks for marketers, um, that they could understand culture in a, a more profound way?
1: I mean, you're right, like the, it feels, it seems as though the older we get, we have a tendency to have much more plasticity around the way we perceive the world, that the world just feels more fixed because we've been so interpolated into, uh, the worldviews that we have adopted, the frames that we have used to to shape the world has become so, so ingrained that it's hard for us to see kind of outside of it. And what it means for us, the the not tips and tricks, tips and tricks, is that we have to first start with that, the fact, the truth, that our worldview is not an objective worldview, it is subjective. And we start there to say, oh, the way I see the world is valid, because that's my experience, but my experience may not be Eric's experience. That doesn't make Eric's perspective wrong. It makes it different, right? That's why for some, a cow is leather, for others is a deity, and for some it's dinner. Which one's right? All three of them are right, right? And the way we see the world is the way that we behave in the world. So if we start with the the foundational understanding that our worldview is subjective and other people live by different meaning-making systems that we call culture, start there, go, okay, cool. So people are different and that is valid. Their differences are valid. And if people see the world differently, then there is a world that exists that's beyond my own. So we should walk into experiences, walk into uh, interactions with people, sort of like students. I I stay in student posture all the time. Everyone walk into, I'm the dumbest person in the room and I'm just there to learn as much as as I can. So ethnographers refer to this idea of you observe the the strange looking for the familiar you go oh this is weird like eric connects a lot of figurines that's probably not weird because i did that too but let's just say no, oh eric tries a lot of weird concoctions of food like the, the weirdest thing he's going to try it and i may go like oh that's weird not for me right but then i look at that and go oh his fascination with chocolate flavored toothpaste i'm going to somewhere It's just like my fascination for major seventh chords in acapella music, right? Oh, the same sort of affinity he has to that is similar to the affinity I have for another thing. And while someone may look at that thing and go, that's crazy, I'm doing the same thing to Eric. So it means like, oh, okay, there is some familiar factors into what may seem strange. And in other cases, we have to find the strange in in the, the familiar. That like, I do these things and go, why do I do this? this is weird that we do this ritual. Why do do we do this thing? And if we start interrogating it, then we start to get a better understanding of what are these invisible forces that we would call culture that have created conventions and expectations of what people like us do. And if we start from that place, a place of curiosity versus certainty, I think that we'll, we'll by very nature, show up in the world a bit more empathetic uh, and a bit more human.
0: You are on a a bit of a rocket ride and have been that way for a number of years. And so I would be remiss if I was not uh, pinning you down for a second to ask, how do you manage that? Right. You're at Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. You're actually in New York for part of the week at and Kennedy and all of the other things that you're doing. And you're now launching a book, but you also are a family man. How does one balance on that tightrope and make sure that everybody gets part of the the juggling that is that life skill that you've been working on?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm still figuring that part out too. <laughs> I think you know, I, I start with the fact that my wife is very supportive. Um and my children are supportive. I mean, the most thing I've realized is that what I what I, I'm not like sharing me, I'm like they're sharing me with with the world and with the agency and with the with the school and the students. So I'm very grateful for that. I think that what I found to be helpful is that what I do at Ross is exactly what I do at widen This is what I do as an author, is what I do as a content creator, as a speaker, that what I study is what I teach, what I teach is what I do, what I do is what I study. And these things are very cyclic in nature. They're incestuous in a lot of ways. So I never really feel like I'm like putting time here and putting time there. I'm kind of doing all the same thing and finding ways to allocate power um, to the right applications at the right time. Now, sometimes those apps may run at the same time. I you have a class and there's a client meeting. And I go, oh man, I'm gonna pull this off, and it is full of uh, all the cortisol just dripping through my blo- my blood stream, and you know, it's full of anxiety. But those things don't happen as often as they could, so I count that as a blessing. But more importantly, I just sort of i take i take it day by day, man. I just figured I count it all a blessing that every little thing, because I remember a time when it wasn't there wasn't a rocket ship, but as you say, um, but nothing was happening my way. So I figure I was gonna just try everything I got while I got it, because who knows what tomorrow's gonna bring. So I try to die empty and you know, hopefully I do the best that I can each day and, and no one's disappointed. And if they are, then we gotta find a better way to reevaluate. But there's no like magic bullet to any of this. Fair. I wish there were. Fair I mean, enough. Someone figured it out, please let me know. But right now, I just, I just go ham, man. I just, like, wherever I'm doing, is like, it's got my full attention. When I'm in the classroom, full attention. When I'm at Wyden, full attention. When my kids, whew, full attention. And then, you know, church, full attention. I just try to be as, as as plugged in so that the times that I'm there matter.
0: Now, Marcus, my, my job at M Live is to run around and tell some of the best stories of things happening in and around Michigan, which is, of course, why I reached out to you to do this. But I wanna ask, because if people are listening to this podcast and seeing all the things that you're kind of involved in, their question should be, why does he stay? He could clearly go anywhere and do anything at this point. Why do you stay here in Michigan?
1: I am a product of this state. I'm a product of Detroit. I'm a product of Ann Arbor. Like, I'm Michigan made, baby. And I just feel like, you know, I lived in New York for uh, just shy of eight years. And I always felt guilty, even though I came home once a month, every month, uh, maybe missed a month here or there, but every month for those seven to eight years, I would come home to see my family, go to church and, and, and do the night, do the whole thing. But I always felt like I was robbing the city. I feel like I was robbing Detroit. I feel like I was robbing the state, that I was giving my gifts elsewhere. And I feel like I've gotten so much from being a Michigander. I mean, I wear it with pride um, that I feel like I have an, an obligation. It's my reasonable service. I mean, we're pure Michigan, right? There's no place like us, and I imagine everyone feels the same way about about where they're from, and they're totally right to do that. But Michigan just feels like it's its own sort of its own sort of island in the world, where people who are from Detroit are Detroiters, people who are from Michigan are from Michigan, and there's a connection that exists there, whether you're. A, UP the west side of the state where you are the southeast side of the state where I am or even in the center and I just feel I just feel really grateful that I I was able to 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 grow up here so much so that I moved my family from New York because I wanted my kids to grow up like this too
0: all right my friend you've been in the trenches putting this book out into the world. So my last question for you today, you clearly, I'm gonna guess, have not been able to read for fun for probably an attorney. Is there a is there a book on your list that you can't wait to dive into and just read for fun at some point?
1: <laughs> Man, I have I literally have low like a ton of books that are stacked up right now that I there's been...
0: is there one that's calling to you they are like as soon as I get this thing out in the world, I can't wait to dive into this book.
1: <laughs> You know, there is, there is one by a new colleague at Michigan She's in the communications department, um, uh, professor powers. She has a book called about branding that I want to read. Um, that's the one that is at the top of the list right now. Um, cause it's, it's real, it's, it's a critique on brands in an interesting way. Um, but at the same time in, in the fashion of Marcus Collins, I'm thinking about what the next project will be too. So I'm, I'm starting to to get the itch to look at things that are outside of branding uh, to explore for maybe the next book.
0: I have a pitch for you before I let you go. Uh, If you would like to if you'd like to put your uh, Thor hammer behind talking about corporate culture, we would love your input.
1: (laughs) Huh. I mean, God willing, the book does well. Then maybe that's the second book, right, for the corporate culture.
0: My friend, uh, always an honor to get to catch up with you. Uh, If people want to buy the book, do you have a preferred place they grab it from?
1: anywhere where books are sold, whether it's online, like an on Amazon independent stores as well uh, on Kindle or on audiobooks as well. So wherever books are sold. Wait, they, wait, wait, they
0: there, did it. you read it? Please tell me you read it. Did you read it?
1: I did not read it. Oh, who did it then? I did it's, you know what? So that th- that deserves a bit of a story. My good while, friend- While you're telling with... the
0: story, I'm gonna download the audio book. Cause I love, yeah, I'm gonna do that.
1: So my good friend who I grew up with, gentleman, my name is Joel Stengel. We went to Glightly together, went to cast together. He is now a very, very prominent actor. He's on the, the, the Showtime show uh, called The Shy. Amazing speaking voice. He does voiceovers. And I tried to get him to do the book because it just it made all the sense in the world. But he was shooting, so we couldn't do it at the same time. So I, I picked a lineup of of of, uh, of voices that I heard. There's a gentleman by the name of Carrie. And I was like, oh, this guy, his voice is really he did it. And Carrie did a really good job. So I'm proud of it. They, they, it would have taken me like two weeks to do it because I'm a novice. They were like, carve out a month because this is a hard thing. And I was like, that I yeah. can't do. So uh, let's, I, do, let's I, I
0: actually remember a long time ago, this was probably 10 years ago, watching Vaynerchuk do his first audiobook, And it was the same thing, like a uphill climb, one, one line at a time, seven right. months later, and the book's out in the world. Marcus, congratulations on the launch, my friend. I cannot wait to have you back on and talk about book two.
1: I'm grateful. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you.